Well, this morning we get to carry on our sermon series, looking at the drama of the Passion Narrative. Chance for us to read closely these verses at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Also this morning, of course, I have the privilege of uh, preaching here with my mother present. It's not often I get the chance to do that. So I, I invite you all to, uh, to put on the rose-colored glasses that a mother wears uh, <laughs> and to try and see the sermon in the same light. I take from my text this morning the 48th verse of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Please pray with me. Gracious God, may your Holy Spirit be with us now, that we may hear a word from you in the words that follow. Amen. The secret police gathered with their commander at nightfall at the barracks just inside the city walls. The commander looked over his men. He could see the mix of anticipation and bloodlust in each of their eyes. He could sense their hearts beating rapidly and notice several of them rubbing their their weapons with their sweaty palms. Even though they had their weapons ready, the goal, as always, was to execute the operation quickly and overwhelm the enemy of the state, convincing them that resistance was futile. The quieter, the better. That was especially true this time of year when the city was on high alert with so many pilgrims, visitors, and other unwanted elements around. The commander gave the signal and they filed out one by one. The boots they wore were not the type with steel heels meant for goose-stepping rallies. The goal of this operation was silence and stealth. It was the middle of the night. Few people would be out on the streets and those who were knew better than to say anything when they passed. Some of the official types led the way. At the front of them was their, was their informant. There was always one who was willing to turn for a price. Human nature was far too predictable. This one turned for a mere 30 pieces of silver. They moved quickly up the hillside beyond the walls, past the grove of olive trees to a secluded place. The insurgent was there, waiting with his small band of followers. It looked pathetic. They always do. You could see the fear in their faces as though they hadn't known what they were up against. The informant led the way to their leader and kissed him on the cheek. That was the sign. The commander signaled his men, and they surrounded the insurgent leader and seized him. He just stood there and let himself get arrested. So many of these insurgents had no real courage. One of them drew a sword and slashed at the commander's men. He worried for a moment that things might get ugly, but the insurgent leader calmed them. What a weakling. One more nuisance gone, one more voice silenced. It's interesting how the story of Jesus' arrest gets so little attention in the minds of most believers. When MJ and I were looking for hymns to sing after the service, we realized that there's virtually no hymns written on this passage. Before this morning, when was the last time you read the story of Jesus' arrest? I find the relative silence intriguing. And I have to let you in on a little secret. Lean in, listen up. Even though you might not think much of the arrest of Jesus, even though you may not read it too often, it is one of the single most important passages for any consideration of the historical Jesus. Serious. Most of you are quite familiar with the so-called quest for the historical Jesus. Ever since the 19th century, when scholars pointed out that the Gospels were not eyewitness accounts, 
and that the evangelists molded their narratives for theological reasons, people have tried to piece together from the text, from the Gospels, who the actual Jesus was. Who is the Jesus behind the texts? Who is the real Jesus once we get beyond the biases of the Gospel writers and later Christians? Was Jesus a teacher of uncommon wisdom? Is that who he was? A great wisdom teacher's a great wisdom teacher whose sayings bring us closer to God? Was he an apocalyptic prophet of the end times? Was his expectation of the end the one key to interpret his sayings and his actions? But regardless of where you fall on the question of the historical Jesus, you're forced to wrestle with the implications of this passage that we read this morning. This story is one of the most important, and it shows us two key aspects of the historical Jesus. Got your attention? The first key element of this story is that Jesus gets arrested by the authorities. Think about that for a moment. He got arrested in the middle of the night, explicitly so that there would be no civil, dis- civil disturbance as a result. No scholar that I'm aware of disputes the fact that Jesus was arrested by the authorities and then put to death. All four Gospels agree on that fact. And yet the very fact itself tells us a remarkable amount about how Jesus' contemporaries saw him. A few years ago, Reza Aslan published a book called Zealot. In that book, Aslan relies on this passage, on this fact, more than any other in his determination of who the historical Jesus was. The authorities did not arrest people who were wisdom teachers. People who preach love and compassion do not get arrested. I'm sorry. That's just a fact. There are plenty of, and there are plenty of apocalyptic preachers of the end times today, as there were back in the day of Jesus. If the authorities arrested everyone who talked about the end times, then we would be devoid of those wonderfully enthusiastic people on the street corner. People get arrested by authorities in the middle of the night because they are a grave threat to the security of the state. That's what's going on here. The authorities knew if they arrested Jesus in the light of day, especially with all the pilgrims there in the city for the festival of Passover, that they might have a full revolt on their hands. Jesus was a threat, a real threat, the type of threat that deeply worries those in power. Churches all across Houston and all across the country like to domesticate Jesus, to make him as non-political as we can. But the very fact that he was arrested in the middle of the night shows that his contemporaries, at least, did not see him that way. He was very political and very much a threat. He had to be neutralized, and he had to be silenced. One reason why people ignore the importance of this fact is because they claim it has no relevance to us today. Jesus Jesus challenged the religious establishment of first century Palestine. He was a threat to the power of the scribes and the priestly class. He questioned their purity codes and legal observance. He critiqued their authority, and he critiqued the authority and centrality of the temple in Jerusalem. But, of course... Zero of those things are relevant for us today. We don't have uh, a, a, a temple, and we don't have a scribal or a priestly class. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, and we definitely do not follow the Mosaic law. All of this makes it easy to dismiss Jesus' arrest and its implications as a one-time thing. It mattered then in the first century. It doesn't matter now. Let's focus on his teachings about compassion and love, or on how his blood on the cross justifies you before God. The problem is... When we do that, we do a grave disservice to that which Jesus gave up his life for. Jesus defied the religious establishment whose various rules and habits oppressed those in need. 
Those same rules and habits prevented the religious establishment from actually doing anything real to, to alleviate poverty. The religious establishment of his day was part and parcel to a system that led to grave suffering. That is why Jesus opposed them to the point of risking his life for it. He stood up for the marginalized, and that put him at odds with the status quo and the religious leaders who benefited from it. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the exact same thing happens today. When Martin Luther King Jr. challenged the white supremacist regime in the American South and the Jim Crow laws and the terror that supported it, he was challenging a system that was fully supported by the white religious establishment. Allow me to repeat that. Segregation in the American South was supported by the white churches. All the time. They used the Bible to justify the separation of races. They used the Bible to justify why black Americans were inferior to white Americans. And if you don't believe me, I encourage you to go back and read some of those sermons. To call into question Jim Crow was to call into question the entire Southern way of life. Martin Luther King and the rest of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference used the very same Bible and the very same Jesus to defend their actions. For King and the other civil rights leaders, the message of the Bible was clear. Jesus stood on the side of the oppressed and the disinherited. That was true regardless of what passages or justifications you could use, you could come up with in the Bible. King and others were threats. Threats that had to be silenced. King survived an untold number of death threats and assassination attempts. He and others were arrested by the authorities for challenging an oppressive regime and the religious establishment that supported it. Just like Jesus. Now, King had the support of most people in the North when he was talking about race and Jim Crow. He started preaching against the Vietnam War, and when he claimed that the Vietnamese were children of God, just like Americans, and that America was doing horrible things in Vietnam for the wrong reasons, he found himself with far less support. There were plenty of Christian pastors all across the country who preached in support of the Vietnam War. It was, after all, a righteous crusade against communism. Communists are atheists. God and Christ were clearly on the side of the American military machine. To question that leads to death threats. King also found surprisingly muted support when he launched his Poor People's Campaign. American capitalism is and always has been fully supported by the religious establishment, even when it leaves certain people behind and damages the dignity of those who are poor. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated not when he stood up and talk about, talked about Vietnam. He was assassinated not when he stood up to Jim Crow, but when he stood up for sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, who were trying to get higher wages. For that, he was silenced. Now, it goes without saying that these are complicated issues. We use strong language because Jesus used strong language, and so did Martin Luther King Jr. I don't mean to ignore the complexity of these issues. The war in Vietnam was complex, for sure. There were a lot of issues at play. American capitalism and its effects are highly complex, and there are many dimensions to any discussion of them. My point is that Christianity today, much like Judaism in Jesus' day, tends to support the status quo, even when that status quo leads to suffering, inequity, poverty, and discrimination. Not only that, but when you challenge certain things, you hit the, you hit the proverbial third rail, you know, the one with the electricity running through it. And when you hit it, you get a reaction, just as Jesus did. The past few weeks, we have witnessed a shift in our national conversation about gun regulations. This shift has come about in the wake of the horrible shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida, and in particular because of the reaction of those students who survived that shooting. 
Last week it came out that one of the survivors, Cameron Kasky, had to shut down his Facebook account because of the lurid death threats that he was receiving in that medium. Here was a young man who had just seen 17 of his classmates and teachers gunned down. He called for restrictions on the AR-15, a semi-automatic rifle based on a military-grade weapon. It does not strike me as an outlandish proposal, and yet it riled up enough people to threaten a 17-year-old with death. Why? Ever since the first federal gun regulations that came in the wake of Prohibition, Americans have had broad agreement that the right to bear arms protected Americans' right to own firearms for recreational use and for self-defense. Americans have agreed that possession of military weapons or weapons like armor-piercing bullets should not be available for purchase. So why would the restrictions on the AR-15 cause so much emotion? For many Americans, any, re any restriction on the AR-15 is an assault on their basic freedom and a threat uh, by the tyranny of, and, and the threat of tyranny for, by the government. As a non-gun owner myself, I don't pretend to understand the depth of the emotion on this issue. But emotions are such, but the emotions are such that some religious leaders have painted ownership of an AR-15 as a religious issue. This is one of the dangers of religion. So often it can be used to justify things that seem on the face of it distinctly non-Christian. And yet that should not surprise us. It was true in the time of Jesus, and it is true today. Which is why it's incumbent on religious people to stand up and say unequivocally that our religion calls, us on, us, that our religion calls on us to support those who, those who suffer and to go out and prevent suffering. If banning the AR-15 can actually help save the lives of children, then we should support it, in my mind. Even though saying so might touch that proverbial third rail. The arrest of Jesus in the Gospels should be a challenge to us all. It should force us to see where religion is being misused to support a status quo that oppresses. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus, we need to call out the false use of religion, even if calling it out carries with it certain consequences. Jesus was not just a preacher of uncommon wisdom. He did not just preach about compassion and love. He also challenged an oppressive system in such a way that it was seen as an existential threat to the status quo. It had to be silenced. Now, there's one other thing about this passage, detailing Jesus' arrest, that needs to be noted. One other crucial element that tells us about who Jesus was. The historical Jesus was a political threat. It wasn't just about religion but about challenging the very fabric of society on behalf of the oppressed. We see that clearly with his arrest in the middle of the night. But the other remarkable thing about this passage is Jesus' reaction to his arrest. Throughout time and over, the, and over the centuries, there have always been those who questioned the powers that be. There have even been those who called out the religious establishment for their complicity in oppression and evil. But normally, these figures are revolutionaries. Think of the communists in the 19th and 20th centuries as great examples. They called out, call out the oppression that grows out of unregulated capitalism. They stood with those who were oppressed and envisioned a new way forward that eliminated private ownership of goods to benefit the collective. Communists, since Karl Marx himself, have always been highly critical of religion and the way in which it re reinforces the status quo. But there's a key difference between communists and other revolutionaries throughout history and Jesus. When the authorities came to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night, he knew what was about to happen. The text tells us again and again that he had no illusions about his fate, even if the, even if the disciples seemed intentionally or unintentionally ignorant. Jesus knew the charges against him. He was living in a time when revolutionaries were common. The model for him was there to emulate if he wanted to be a revolutionary. But when Judas leaned in to give him that fateful kiss, 
and the soldiers stepped forward to arrest him, Jesus did not fight back. Not only did he not fight back, he was unarmed, as were most of his disciples. He had no intention of fighting back, no intention of violent resistance. In fact, when one of his supporters, Mark does not tell us who, pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of the man who was arresting him, Jesus does not support that action. In other gospel accounts, Jesus even heals the ear of that man. This is the ultimate display of nonviolent resistance. It's one thing to talk about nonviolence and its importance. It's something else entirely to live it out when violence is done to you. It was easy for Christian preachers to preach nonviolence in the isolationist years of the 1930s. It was something else entirely to preach nonviolence in the week following December 7, 1941. This is one of the elements of the historical Jesus that so many Christians neglect. In our society, Christians and others consistently call for violent retribution against their enemies, both foreign and domestic. That was also the expectation of so many during Jesus' time. They were looking for a Davidic Messiah, someone in the mold of David, to deliver them from the rule of the Romans. People were expecting violent resistance. And at this crucial moment, at the one moment when Jesus should have resisted, by all accounts, he did not. He made no preparation to resist. And when the time came, he freely went into custody, knowing full well what that meant. Throughout his life, he called for resistance to the powers of oppression, but that resistance should not take violent forms. Violence begets more violence. If we, know, if we know one thing from looking at our world today, it is that truism. The violence, the horrible violence of September 11, 2001, has led to a cycle of violence that we live with today throughout the world. The economic and social violence that was visited on the Germans in the Treaty of Versailles after World War I led directly to the horrible violence of World War II. Our most ingrained human instinct is to fight back, and we're called cowards when we do not. And yet, here is our Savior, in the pivotal moment of violence against him, at the one point where he could have resisted, where one of his companions, in fact, does resist, and yet Jesus refrains from violence. It's amazing. Here we have a passage that confirms that the historical Jesus was a political threat, and that the historical Jesus opposed violence even when it seemed most justified. Non-violence, non-aggression. It's almost as though Jesus is saying that the, that the path to the kingdom of God is the path of peace. But it, was all too much, but it was all too much for his disciples that night. They were not ready to face the consequences of challenging the established order. When the soldiers appeared to silence Jesus and the true weight of what they were a part of sunk in, the disciples decided it was time to abandon Jesus and save their own skins. Jesus was ready to engage in nonviolent resistance. He sought to resist the powers that be, but not with violence. The disciples wanted no part of any kind of resistance. They wanted no part of the suffering that Jesus was to face. The Gospel of Mark includes a curious detail that none of the other Gospels include. It's this detail of this young man who, when seized by the soldiers, leaves his clothes behind and runs away naked, rather than, faces the, rather than face the consequences of being there. This, the figure of this young man has confused interpreters for 2,000 years. Was the figure supposed to be Mark himself? Is he a symbol not only for the disciples, but also for us? It turns out that the young man in the white linen garment appears again in the Gospel of Mark. He shows up at the very end. He appears in the empty tomb to the women. Perhaps that figure is a message for us all. 
The soldiers came that night to silence Jesus. They came to put his message to an end once and for all. They came to ensure that religion would occupy its rightful place beside those in power and those who use violence. It seemed during that darkest of all nights that they won. The young man, all of us, ran away naked. When he appears again in the empty tomb, however, it's almost as if he says, your silencing did not work. The voice carries on, and not even violence can quash it. The voice carries on every time we have the courage to touch that societal third rail and face the consequences. The voice carries on when we fully embrace nonviolence as a way of life. The voice carries on when we take the historical Jesus seriously. We all run away naked from time to time. The key question is whether God will find us standing there at the empty tomb in the end.